you can integrate sustainability in almost any job and career path. And if we're going to solve some of our major challenges like climate change, um, then we actually have to, we actually don't even have a choice. We need to get the system going. And that requires not just what we can do, you know, when, when we're at home, but what we're, we can do when we're at work. Welcome to the NextGen Banker podcast, where we explore what's next in banking and talk with the innovators responsible for creating positive change in the financial sector. I am your host, David Ryling, and I am super excited today to welcome Marilyn Waite. Marilyn, welcome to the NextGen Banker podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I have to start with a maybe a little interlude today because we've gotten some great feedback and positive feedback from the audience um, and a reminder to check out our musical feature at the end of the episode. And if you didn't know it, at the end of each Next Gen Banker podcast episode, we showcase a new artist from somewhere around the world uh, representing a wide range of genres. So in my wide spectrum of tastes, uh, you're going to get it uh, with our uh, showcase feature artists. So be sure to check it out. So Maryland, I am absolutely fascinated uh, with your work career and path. And I'm, I've seen it or understand that it's ranges from Madagascar to France, to China, to the US. Can you tell us a little bit about your career and uh, in sustainability and in particular, your focus in sustainability finance? Yes. My early training was as a civil and environmental engineer. So concrete, steel, water, wastewater, using more chemical processes. And so there was already an anchoring of environmental sustainability in those principles, in those concepts. I think what drove home more of the social sustainability side was when I spent time in Madagascar. So my first job from my first degree was in Madagascar working on water resources with the United Nations in the more rural south of the country. And what happened was we went for a couple of months without reliable electricity. And that really shifted my focus towards both the private sector, private finance included, and also to clean energy, reliable energy, affordable energy, because I saw that without the electricity being reliable, the local businesses were shutting down, right? So refrigeration companies at that time, cyber cafes, I know we don't really think about uh, cyber cafes anymore, but they were a thing at one point. And all of these things had an impact on the local economy. So that really caused the big shift. And from there, I started to work on sustainability and engineering in a more profound way, and then eventually entered the nuclear and renewable energy sector in France, and that's when, ultimately, while I was working in R&D, technical economic studies, bringing new technologies to market, I found that a lot of our challenges were more on the finance and investment side than on the engineering or project management side. So that was another shift that I made through experience, really, and then shifted to China, uh, shipped myself to China from France and um, was working on a lot of things in China and eventually came back to the States to lead a climate, clean tech, clean energy practice uh, and a seed capital firm, which led me to what I'm doing today, which is I wear multiple hats. So my main hat is leading the climate finance fund 
um, which is philanthropically supported by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and hosted by the European Climate Foundation. And really, it's a strategy across those different geographies, so China, the European Union, and the United States, all about mobilizing capital through three primary pools of capital, venture capital, asset management, and of course, and most importantly, bank lending and credit. Fantastic. And can I just ask you, when, uh, from your perspective, when you think about sustainable finance from that global lens, uh, how does the U.S. compared to Europe, compared to Asia, how do you kind of think about those things in terms of maybe the, the geographics of who's progressing faster or slower? Right. So I think even the term sustainability is quite rooted in a certain cultural norm that doesn't apply everywhere. So I, I think, for example, if when sustainability was being developed as a concept, right, as a phrase from the United Nations and other influencers, let's say, if China had been at that point, you know, this major economy that it is today, I think maybe we would have used a different word or phrase. So, for example, I think in China, there's a lot more focus on health, on being healthy, right? And that comes from traditional Chinese medicine. It comes from all these other cultural influences. And I think um, that kind of health lens is one way in which people understand the concept within China. And you could you could say that about many parts of the world, but there's a certain angle and understanding of it that is pronounced in China more so than other some other parts of the world. I think also um, there's a lot of you know different interpretations of what it means. And I think there's now in the United States, what I've witnessed is a move towards this concept of regeneration, regenerative economy, and that it's not good enough just to sustain ourselves, but we also um, need to have this kind of circular regenerative improvement on, on things. And I think, you know, when if you're talking about a more emerging or frontier market, a least developing economy, then maybe sustainability in the kind of very narrow way of thinking about it in terms of just keeping things going as they are is not the best word because how they are is not okay, right? There's poverty and there's malnutrition, uh, lack of access to markets and to goods and to services. And so actually sustaining is probably not the goal, right? And so I think uh, there are definitely these kind of, kind of cultural differences. But overall, when I think about sustainability, I think about these four pillars, which I do think apply across. Um, and these four pillars are social cohesion, kind of social sustainability, economic well-being, including financial well-being, financial health, environmental protection and well-being. So our ecosystems, everything that depends on the environment, which is our economy, right? So once someone once said that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary by, of the environment. Um, and so very much uh, that is a, a strong pillar of sustainability. And then finally, which I, I always like to incorporate, is this idea of future generations and future thinking. Because we could imagine, I mean, we often do actually have a, a social, economic, and environmental system that can be quite myopic. And so sustainability pushes us forward to think about future generations beyond whatever is normal in our industry. So for for use of thinking about 30-year 
terms, then we should think about 50-year terms. If we're used to thinking about, you know, two to five years, we should push that boundary. And so beyond that, really, you know, our Earth has been around and our ecosystem have been around for over, you know, 3.8 billion years. And so we've been around for a very short time compared to that. And so if we think a, a bit more long term, <laughs> I think we can go a long way. Yeah. Someone once told me that people really start to understand climate and climate impacts when they have grandchildren, because it really then gives them a window into a next generation or another century. Um, and they begin to start to internalize the impacts of what they're doing. And so I always thought that was kind of a fascinating way to get people maybe to think uh, more longer term. I have a question for you, because it's my understanding that uh, you were able to attend uh, the Global Climate Summit uh, COP26 in Glasgow. Were there any any takeaways or any thoughts uh, from that event that you could share uh, with our listeners? Yes, that was my first COP. And I it may be my last COP. <laughs> I am. Um, I it, it's an interesting COP, right? It's, it's a COP that's in the middle of a global pandemic. So the many things about the COP, it's it's a COP that comes after the U.S. removed itself from the Paris Agreement and then put itself put itself back in, and um, so there's lots of context behind uh, the this particular COP uh, or, or conference of the parties, the, the big uh, UN climate conference, and so I think there's a lot to unpack there about this particular convening. I think if this was your 26th COP, then you likely have a, a more nuanced perspective and probably you know, can list off the pros and the cons. This, being, this having been my first COP, I have a more critical perspective. <laughs> and I was pretty disappointed in the outcomes, let's say. I, I thought that based on all of the recent studies and evidence that we have now, so from the IPCC, from even from the IEA, the very conservative uh, International Energy Agency, which pretty much said we cannot expand financing into fossil fuels uh, for us to solve climate change, to keep life on Earth going um, in a livable way. And yet we didn't approach this, or I didn't see the outcomes that match that level of urgency and all of the evidence we have now that maybe wasn't at our same uh, disposal before now. And so I, I think my recommendations for the next COP would be to uh, definitely think about who's on the inside, actually at the negotiating table, and who's on the outside, and really uh, have a different approach to be more inclusive of those like the youth, like the younger generations, who really have a big stake in this and really should be, you know, for each delegation, there really should be a youth delegate who negotiates officially for their countries, right? Yes, That's not I would case. agree. Yeah. <laughs> I would put my daughter right in the middle of that as well. I mean, just her perspective is just so much more passionate and urgent and sincere. I, I don't know how else to put it than others that I talk to. It, it, it is really very much a generational focus. Right. And and so I think that was part of what I witnessed as a as a challenge. And of course, it was also well documented that there were a lot of fossil fuel badges. So the fossil fuel industry, if it were a country having more access, more voice than any single country. So that's problematic um, as well. 
I think that the reason why I attended this COP was because it was the first time that private finance or commercially oriented finance, however you want to call it, was on the table, was present, was you know, a part of the conversation in a more serious way. And so that's why I was there. So I followed quite a bit of the finance and investment activity, uh, which of course is not the core of you know official climate negotiations. I think that there ha- there has been progress, and that progress um, is not nearly close. I mean, even remotely close to what we need. Um, imagine if most of the banks who were present were B Corp banks. Right. Not the case. Right. Not the case at all. Imagine if most of the banks present committed to phasing out fossil fuels in the next five, 10 years. Not the case. Or even, you know, by 2050, also not the case. <laughs> um, imagine if most of the banks present um, and a part of the various commitments were truly diverse and inclusive and approached climate lending with a climate justice lens, right? So in addition to counting the carbon and, and counting emissions, also taking a look at, well, where, in terms of our footprint, where are we concentrating our emissions? Is it disproportionately in poor communities, in communities of color, in poor countries? You know, really look at the justice angle in addition to the uh, pure climate impact or carbon impact angle. And so I think there's a lot of work to do. I um, I have seen progress post-COP, however, in this notion of offsets. So I think going in, there was a lot of momentum around offsets are going to save us. Carbon offsets, I, I actually heard from a, a chairperson of a major European bank, you know, a trillion dollar level, that we have to offset our way out of this problem and that we should plant oak trees. I mean, lit- quite literally, I was just flabbergasted. I mean, it was, you know, that was, <laughs> that was part wow. of I, that's the kind of environment that I was in, right? Um, yeah. Global banking community and, and comments like that. And I, and I will say now we even see uh, Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England, speaking about how actually, no, we cannot offset, offset our way out of this. Um, we have to actually reduce our carbon emissions and our, those activities. We need the action plans to do that and decarbonize. And so I think, you know, perhaps part of the silver lining is that there was so much kind of bad press um, criticism over many parts of the COP that I think hopefully now there there's a, a real reckoning happening and shifting in approaches. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, if I could take you one way to to where banks uh, are engaging, and while it's not the solution, I, I would say it's really the beginning of it all. Let's talk a little bit about PCAF and what's going on with the Partnership for Carbon Accounting for Financials. How do you see that, kind of in your own words, how, how do you kind of describe what PCAF is and what impact it can have? Right. So PCAF started in the Netherlands among the Dutch pension funds and banks coming together to harmonize the approach by which they measure and disclose and reduce the carbon emissions of their loans and investments, right? So it's finance emissions, it's the core business of a bank uh, is to provide these loans and lines of credit. And so we had supported the global expansion and still do support the global expansion of PCAF 
to be a true partnership. So we helped to bring it to the United States and to other parts of the world. And what I'm proud of is that when we brought it to the United States, we were not dragged down by the laggards in the industry, meaning we started with the banks and the credit unions that have ESG in their DNA, so environmental social governance metrics in their DNA. So we started with uh, the CDFI banks, credit unions, or the or and the B Corp banks, um, the banks that are part of GABVI, the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, for example. I mean, all of this this ecosystem of values based, ESG oriented financial institutions, and we had held the line with those institutions in bringing it to the U.S. And then we brought in the laggards to come come up to this level. Oftentimes, historically, what's happened is that I think there's a tendency to go with the largest bank or the largest financial institution and say, well, if we can get them on board to do this thing, then everyone else will join in, right, given their size. And the truth is what happens or what has happened in the past is a lot is watered down and they bring down the ambition as opposed to coming up to an ambition. And so I think we were able to maintain the integrity of PCAF in this process. And I'm really proud of that. Um, PCAF uh, for each financial asset class provides a methodology to measure uh, greenhouse gas emissions. It builds on the greenhouse gas gas protocol, which is also currently being updated, um, but is the foundation for carbon accounting in general for the non-financial companies. And it is comprehensive. So across auto loans, mortgages, commercial real estate, bonds, corporate loans, so on and so forth. Yeah, perfect. And so, I mean, I can speak uh, maybe from being each one of those, a member of the Global Alliance, as well as a B Corp bank and a CDFI. Uh, and we had submitted our data, Sunrise Banks, we submitted our, our loan portfolio data. I think we just got it back. We were looking at those uh, results now. I think we got it yesterday, as a matter of fact. And our wow. whole, we're gearing up to disclose in the first quarter. And then where I think for us, really where the rubber meets the road is, uh, what's our strategy to act? Um, right. How do we get in alignment with the Paris Agreement? How do we engage with our clients? How do we engage um, or screen out certain loan portfolio class types and screen in others uh, that we want to incent? And so it's really that how do we get to action as fast as possible and really show a path forward for other banks and credit unions and financial cooperatives around the world that we can do this. And but it is going to take yeah, commitment for one encouraged for another in which to uh, make a sizable and measurable impact and in, in lead the way. Right. Well, I'm excited for that. And I would love to hear how you strategize based on that data, because that is part of the the effort is to have that visibility first and then decide, OK, how to how to best act right to to improve and bring down the emissions. Exactly. And maybe in true Sunrise form as kind of a social entrepreneurial organization, uh, which happens to be a bank, uh, we're going to make it up and we're going to figure it out. And some things are going to work and some things aren't going to work. But we've we've got to take the mindset of action as opposed to we're going to study this for another year. So we just kind of feel that sense of urgency to try things and lead. And if we fail, it's just a learning in disguise. And and we're going to keep going and, and share what we learn with others. So they don't have to make that mistake. So very much looking for a community, if you will, uh, in, in PCAF financials to 
to engage with. And that could be across the banking sector, insurance, obviously real estate finance, bonds, however it may be, there might be gleams of collaboration and, and knowledge that can be shared to accelerate all of us in the, in the process. So if I could, Marilyn, I want to shift you a little bit into, well, I got to touch on this real quick because I'm a fintech guy and a guy. How do you feel fintech plays a role in the environmental, the sustainable banking world to lack of any better term? So we funded a comprehensive landscape of this nexus between fintech and climate, climate fintech from New Energy Nexus, which is an accelerator um, and a clean energy uh, support ecosystem for startups in clean energy and climate solutions. Globally, it started in California. It used to be called the California Clean Energy Fund, and now it's gone global, including with a presence in China and Uganda and um, Indonesia and other parts of the world. And in New York, I guess, if we want to count that as another part of the world <laughs> beyond California. Um, and so the climate fintech landscape really, it was a breakthrough report in that it helped elucidate what we meant, what we mean by climate fintech, what are the various verticals, including reg tech and insure tech and all the ways you can utilize technology and financial technology for uh, some type of climate end. And there, there has been a lot of movement there. We also funded the first cards and payments challenge. Um, so kind of a mini accelerator in climate fintech where we, we've seen or we were able to provide non-dilutive funding to startups who uh, were innovating in, in climate fintech through a new energy nexus, of course. And so, you know, everything from uh, Accountable, which is a U.S., do you know Accountable? Yeah. Um, it's a U.S.-based um, app, so, you know, uh, everyone can download it. It is It brings transparency to tr uh, any transaction that you do. So you safely link your bank card or whatever you use to um, to do most of your purchasing. And it will and you also choose your uh, what's most important to you. So, for example, is it gender equity, racial equity, climate action, um, local supporting local businesses, uh, things of that nature? And you can, like me, choose like everything's very important. Five out of five on everything, you know, the, the strictest. So but you can you have that flexibility. And then based on that, they will also bring transparency to not only the scoring of what you um, are purchasing and the company behind that, but also where they're drawing their data from, because there's a lot of different databases and ways of approaching this um, broader ESG uh, landscape. And so I recently found out when I was making, I, I went, stopped at um, one of the kind of book stands in Union Station in Washington, D.C., so near the Amtrak state or in the Amtrak station. And I from the app, I, I learned that that was not aligned with my goals <laughs> um, on, on gender equality in particular. And they also propose uh, alternatives. And it turns out Wawa is like one of the best alternatives, according to uh, what I, I find to be uh, ESG aligned. And so that kind of information I would have never gotten, right, otherwise. Oh, that is fantastic. And it, it was the one thing that struck me the most about that Climate First report was the power of fintech and data and how it can be used so quickly in which to provide feedback and change behavior. Uh, and, and it is really somewhat of the magic of fintech is it, it's obviously digital. And as a result of that, when used, I think responsibly and appropriate, particularly with AI, 
you can really get some powerful information quick and make decisions accordingly of I'm going to shop here or buy here or eat here uh, as opposed to somewhere else. And and um, not to mention really giving you that feedback on those things that you're most concerned about, whether it's environmentally or socially. And so, yeah, really fantastic. So yes, totally. I would love to switch. You uh, wrote a book, Sustainability at Work and uh, Careers That Make a Difference. And one of the things about the Next Gen Banker podcast is really the ability to get this conversation out to, I'll say, people interested in finance, but also very much ingrained from a value standpoint of that social environmental aspect. Tell me a little bit about what was your motivation for for writing the book in the first place? And were there, there any kind of a little bit of ahas as you are going through the development of the book process. Right. So I had studied engineering for sustainable development. And then when I started to work in the field, so in a nuclear uh, spent fuel recycling plant in, in France, um, I remember having a particular conversation. I was working a night shift um, as a safety, kind of a safety operations engineer. And I was speaking with a fellow engineer about what I had studied and, you know, civil environmental engineering, easy enough. And then when it came to this sustainable development thing, <laughs> sustainability thing, it was just mind boggling for the, from, for my fellow colleague. And uh, I realized, but for me, I was completely doing the work. I, I was improving operationally, looking to improve on the waste and reducing the chemical use in the, in the plant. And for me, it was like a no brainer. Um, yet I think I was living in a bubble around, you know, everyone else around me was st also studying this. And, and so what I wanted to do with the, by writing this book is really, uh, bring to more people the fact that you can integrate sustainability in almost any job and career path. And if we're going to solve some of our major challenges like climate change, um, then we actually have to. We actually don't even have a choice. We need to get the system going. And that requires not just what we can do, you know, when, when we're at home, but what we we can do when we're at work. Yeah, definitely. And and whether I it, it was interesting, I haven't read the book yet. I scanned the uh the, the contents page and you're right. No matter whether you're a teacher or a banker or a lawyer, it, it you you can ingrain sustainability into everything and every lens. And as you mentioned, you, you, we have to. It's just the mindset we need to shift. So if I can press you on the next-gen banker question. So when we think about what does the next generation of banker look like, what comes to mind? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it definitely looks colorful, like more heterogeneous. Um, the next-gen banker, as you were saying, is more innovative. I think leaning into the, to the tech, doesn't shy away from tech, user-friendliness, I think also when I say innovation, also, for example, structuring green loans that don't have the same track record as fossil fuels. And for some projects, no track record at all. I think um, bankers can apply uh, a framework that I developed called SURF, which is in the book. Um, SURF stands for supply chain, user relationships, and future orientation. And I think applying this framework was also very helpful in, uh, for the next-gen banker. I think um, tracking the carbon emissions, reducing those emissions, uh, tracking human capital and demographics and reducing the bias, all of these things, I think, have to be part of the toolkit of the next-gen banker. Um, I would encourage 
uh, more syndication. So one way of managing, if we're going to take on more innovation, more tech, you know, some might hear, oh, more risk. Well, maybe we can manage that risk by partnering and syndicating. Um, and then I would like to see more banks become B Corp banks or equivalents. Um, and I think there's such potential, right? In the United States alone, there's over 5,000 banks and over 5,000 credit unions. Of course, there's been a lot of consolidation. <laughs> um, however, there's there's a lot to work with in terms of uh, ingraining more sustainability into banking and lending. You know, one thing I'll just say because of your audience, um, one of the, my pet peeves is just the amount of inefficiency that I see happening, especially among the ESG-oriented banks. So, for example, oftentimes there isn't a, a foreign currency desk dedicated to a ESG-aligned bank or a sustainable bank, um, and then the bank has to rely on some other unsustainable bank for certain services. Well, what if all the good banks got together and sourced their own backends for international transactions and foreign currency? Um, I think there's a lot of that kind of thing. I think the credit union industry does some of that pretty well. I would love to see it on the on the banking side and just kind of, you know, use that collective nature and that alignment. And so, yes, maybe sometimes you compete. Often not, though. Oftentimes you don't really. It's so different markets, different strategies. Um, but even still, you're, even at, if you look at the largest six banks in the U.S., they, they, there's a lot of syndication, a lot of collaboration. And it would seem to me that we could, have even more impact if there would be that kind of efficiency gains in, in collaborating. Well, Marilyn, we are so on the same page, particularly in regards to that issue, because I was just talking about it about a couple of weeks ago um, within the context of the GABV and what correspondent banking could look like uh, for the organization as a whole and its members. So um, we're on it. We're, we're trying to get it done. Yay. So Marilyn, Thank you so much for joining uh, today. Your insights have been super valuable and how we can use banking and finance uh, as a force for good and, and for sustainability. Again, thanks for all you do out there and appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you for having me again. I appreciate it. For this episode's musical feature, we're showcasing Alice Peacock. Alice is a singer and songwriter originally from Minnesota. She has worked with major artists, including John Mayer, and had her songs featured in TV shows, feature films, and commercials. She released her latest album, Minnesota, in 2019. Here is Taught Me Well by Alice Peacock. just born so I open up my mail and there's a note from you you say you're checking in to see how I've been hey I'm doing so much better if you'd like to know the truth you taught me well you were my teacher and I thank you for the hell you put me through I'm very grateful cause I finally important in my life and I thank my lucky stars every day I'm not your wave and that was Taught Me Well by Alice Peacock you can find more of Alice's music at www.alicepeacock.com 
And if you would like your music featured on the Next Gen Banker podcast, just email nextgenbankerpodcast at gmail.com with a link to your music and website. Thanks for listening to the Next Gen Banker podcast. We'll see you soon.